strange things are afoot at the Circle K. Welcome to my latest experiment. This is a big one, the one I've been waiting for all my life. I just want to relax. Nice little warm bath. <laughs> I don't know how much longer I can hold this. Sarah Connor. Oh, look. Carnage. Dead. Dead, dude. Well, what's fun about that? Quite sweet, really, aren't they? God, I love this street. No one. Oh, no, guys. I broke my leg. Well, I guess I'll just watch out of the rear window of my house. I watch other people be murdered. And I'll watch some people do some weird things. I'll watch a dog be lifted from a basket. So anyways, yeah, how's your weekend going? I mean, my week is going fine so far, but I got to say, I spent almost two years in and out of a leg cast and a fair portion of that in a wheelchair, and I never got to see anybody get murdered. Hooray! Good for you. Yeah, but what about Miss Torso and Miss Lonelyheart? Yeah, I didn't see any of that. All I saw was, like, kids. Hooray! You saw the good children in the alley. Yeah, so what movie are we doing, Claire? Rear Window. By? Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, the accent is back. Yeah, right. I don't understand, again, the southern accent. I mean, we're in 1954, which was in the 1951 to 1955 time range that she gave for the American Western Standard accent. She is consistent. Yippee-ki-yay. Oh, I held my breath there for a second. Yeah. Uh, but So yeah, um, this is our third film in what I have dubbed very much on the nose as Operation Master of Suspense. It's not my best operation name. I know that. But I picked what? it before I started using it. I can't believe you didn't go Operation Cameo. <laughs> operation Cameo probably would have worked. I um, say, I don't know. I say you could have called it Operation Hitchcock of Suspense. Operation Hitchcock of Suspense. I mean, at least it's not just Operation, that common nickname that everybody has for Alfred Hitchcock. Like, I don't know. I mean, I did, what did I say for when we did all the Universal Monster ones? Was it Operation Univer- Universal, Universal Horror? Horror. Yeah. yeah. So I really feel like I yeah. went downhill on my operation naming. Yeah. The more serious we got about actual, like, scheduled operations, the less good the names got. Yeah, that's true. I, I think we need to hire someone to write puns for our operation names. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> I just need to do it better. Or oh. me. Okay, well. You could assign adult me. Hello, I am ready to be assigned to do your puns since Billy can't do it. Adult Wait, you sounds is, like a robot. Yeah, I was going to say, why is adult you a nerd? <laughs> because I'm a nerd right now. <laughs> That's I mean, accurate. well, okay. Yeah, I I'm a nerd it, like daddy and you. Yeah. I live with a family of nerds. All right, so our our nerd. first movie was uh, Psycho, and then uh, which I think everybody loved. Yeah, everybody likes Psycho. Um, our like second like movie a... was Rope, which Claire hated. I think Bo- maybe hated the most right. out of any movie we'd ever watched for the podcast. It's worse yes. than Invisible Man. Yeah. I, well, I know that you thought that, but your mom and I loved it. We liked it. Uh, liked it a lot. I, I was just talking about it with someone today, by the way. Wait, who? Uh, my friend Sarah, I was trying to explain to her oh. about our Harry Potter references in the Rope episode, and that story doesn't make sense if you've never seen Rope, so I ended up giving her like a 15-minute synopsis of the movie, <laughs> of an 86-minute movie. I was like, actually, you should probably just have watched it. Yeah, but I mean, our podcast episode on the 81-minute movie that is Rope was approximately 65 minutes long, so. Hooray. <laughs> That's true. Good job on us. I guess. I don't know. I'm not sure what the right way is for that to go. Um, but today, we're here to talk about Rear Window, 
this is another Jimmy Stewart role, uh, this time with him uh, starring in it. So I guess while he may not have liked the experiment that Rope was with regards to the camera and the one take setup, kind of, he did like working with Alfred Hitchcock, obviously, because he came back to do Rear Window. Ooh, ooh, I was the I was the first one to realize who Alfred Hitchcock was in the scene, the scene where the piano guy is and what? there's a bald guy, there's someone at the piano, and he's Alfred Hitchcock. No, your mom said that, and you said, wait, what, where? I was going to say, <laughs> that is not remotely true, and I was so proud of myself for finding him. It was like, where's Waldo in a movie? <laughs> where's Alfred? Exactly. Was, yeah, see? Yeah. See, look, I can do these games. Operation Where's Alfred? That would have been better. <laughs> yeah, it would have. <laughs> Anything is better than Operation Master of Suspense. Operation Master of Suspense. Uh, that's Sean Connery as Alfred Hitchcock, I suppose. <laughs> Operation um, Master of Suspense. Before before we talk about Rear Window, though, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, so I was listening to a Rope episode, which, you know, I, I don't know if you guys know this, but Danielle has been editing the last several episodes. I think she's been doing a very good job. So when I say that I was listening to the episode to quality check it after she's done, I hope that you take that with every bit of judgment that I am saying to her right now. I think she did a good job, though. I liked it very I much. I think she did a good job. I though. know she did a good job, though. I was just saying that's my opinion. Other people could have different opinions about whether or not she's doing a good job. It's not for me to assign opinions. You are straying dangerously close to the line where I start talking about how many edits were on your track versus how many were on mine. I know what a garbage fire I am as a podcaster. <laughs> I have edited myself so much. You have no idea. I interview people. I edit myself. I talk on this podcast. I edit myself. I'm a nightmare. I hate me. It's why I hate myself. I know how bad I am. You don't have to remind me. I will remind everyone. Uh, but no, uh, so I was listening to that episode and. I was listening to our conversation about cuts and the descriptions that we were using for that and talking about, you know, sound and movement and and light and shadow and all that sort of stuff. And it occurred to me that there was some terminology that we use that I felt like maybe this is why the, like the cut language didn't quite work for you, Claire, is because the way that people physically made movies then is so different from and how now. it is now. And a lot of the lingo that was established in the 30s as sound films were being made and in the uh, the 10s and the 20s as silent films were really being developed and shown across the country, the language came out of the technologies they were using at the time. So when we say a cut, it literally means that they would take the film that they had shot, film literally being a strip of negatives full of individual frames of pictures, and they would chop it and then attach that end to another piece of film. And that's a cut. So like when we talked about last week, you know, shooting a conversation, right? Where the camera would maybe take in both of us. And then while I talked, we would do coverage for me. And while we talk, we would, while you talk, we would do coverage for you. If you were shooting that on actual 35 millimeter film, you would take the footage. Footage being another word that comes from it because a reel of film had, I think the average reel of 35 millimeter film had something like a thousand feet of film strip if you just rolled it all out, uh, which would last you about 11 minutes, uh, which then you can also see why when he's shooting rope, uh, he's not really going past 11 minutes for a take because your average film reel only had 11 minutes of footage of film. 
capable to capture all the stuff that they wanted to do. So they would take their footage that they got and they would lay them out and they would say, okay, so right up until this frame, it'll be the master shot, cut it. And then they would take, say, my portion of the conversation and cut where they want to pick up in that same conversation and they would attach it right there. And that language is kind of held over. Like when we edit the podcast, like we were just talking about right now, we cut out uh, sometimes ums and ahs or when our sentences go off in the wrong direction. And I use a digital cutting tool to cut the digital sound, but that terminology is held over because it literally used to involve cutting a physical piece of film. And I wasn't sure, is that is that something that you knew or is that something that you didn't know? Is that news to you? I do use something like that at school, but we don't... Like a film camera? What do you mean? No, we have this thing called We Video, and basically you just find clips of shots. For example, if you search up Star Wars, it'll bring up Star Wars hyperspace. It'll bring up some stormtroopers dancing in front of some fans, which is my favorite one. It'll show R2-D2. It'll show C-3PO talking nonsense, that sort of thing. If you go into text, you can search up Star Wars, and it'll bring up like Star Wars-themed text stuff. So... So you cut all that stuff together then. What, what yeah. you're saying is you, you cut the little bits that you want mm-hmm. and you put it into a final product that's set up the way that you would like it to be. Basically, if you pull it in and there's like two other... For example, let's say I recorded a, a shot of me with a green screen behind me and me like talking about the rise of Skywalker for like one minute. And then in between it, I put another film and then another film Thing of me in front of a green screen in between if it's too big for the in between part you can either insert and push or you can trim to fit and it's kind of like how you edit our podcast now mm-hmm. i thought well that would be a good thing mm-hmm. it's interesting to me that you guys do get a chance to work with like film editing stuff in school i think that's a cool thing like the rise of digital technology and software that's intuitive and smart to be able to do this stuff that didn't exist when your mom and I were in high school. Like computers were around, but that like that kind of computer technology, you you wouldn't just have that at a school. I think the only computers at our school were in the library, right? In high school, computers would have been in library and you would have a typing class. Do you have typing classes, Claire? What is typing class? That's a no. <laughs> you would call it keyboarding. Oh, it's so basically you learn how to type on a keyboard? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. They just expect you to know how to type, and they don't care how. If you do, if you do it with all your fingers, hooray! If you do it with one finger, meh. If you do it with, but they don't grade two you fingers, on it. No, they don't grade you on it. Yeah, see, there was a there was a program called Mavis Beacon when I was a kid that my mom got for us and was like, "You need to learn how to type. This is a big deal." And like it was a whole thing, like the introduction of computers and all that sort of stuff. Because she was preparing you for your career as a stenographer. Accurate. (laughs) She could tell the future. The future, Billy. She could tell the future. I think it's an interesting thing. And, you know, what I think you'll find that you hear as you go and you talk about movies in more places, Claire, is that people talk very fondly about times when movies were shot on 35 millimeter film. And I I think that there's a richness to that image that's interesting and valuable. and, And I think it's cool when people do shoot on that. But in terms of like the technology that's available today and and the barrier to entry being you can have a a fairly affordable, you know, 4K camera that you can go out and shoot all the stuff that you need to do and then buy a fairly affordable, I mean, business class, you know, editing station to edit your stuff. Like 
I, I think the door has never been more open for people to do that. You know, the, the cameras in those days were hugely expensive. Those film reels, you know, um, they would say, don't waste film. Like that is an expression that's carried over. I think today it'll largely mean like, don't, why, let's stop recording this. We don't need this stuff. But literally in the day, it would be, don't waste our film because film is freaking expensive and you're burning a thousand feet for every 10 minutes of film that you don't use. And wasn't, isn't, wasn't it a thing that like lower budget films would get the leftovers from somebody else's film reel? Yeah, I think that there is something to that. I offhand, I can't think of it, but I, I feel like that there, there were people who would go to like the, like, you know, and, and take those leftover trimmings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think my answer is yes. I'm not knowledgeable enough to say that. Why most of the Universal movies are like, are like, like, on like sixty minutes. Seventy-one minutes to seventy-four minutes is most of the Universal horror films. I suspect that yes, some of that is down to cost savings, because also too with the the way that silent films were shot and the way that sound films were shot, there's a like a a frame per second rate, which basically means like how many how many frames, literal pictures, like if I took a picture, that's called a frame, right? A still picture is a frame. How many frames do you capture per second? Sound films use 24 frames per second and silent films tend to use more like 16 frames per second. I don't really know what the technical reason for that is. I suspect because at 24 frames per second, the mouth movement needs to line up and and not judder as people are talking and since you're not capturing sound and the actual movement of mouth really it didn't matter if their their mouths kind of you know look like animation well and you can see it if you watch silent films the movement is always a little awkward or like kind of jumpy um in a way and it's because of that lower frame speed but i i guess my my answer to the question though is if, if that is right, 16 frames per second versus 24 frames per second, then shooting a film for sound where you actually shoot on the film, that film that you're going to use is 50% more expensive automatically because you're using 50% more frames per second, right? It, literally, you're using more film to shoot the same amount of content. So maybe that had something to do with it. I'm not really sure. Maybe maybe they really didn't want to make these big giant films. Maybe they didn't think people would sit through a hundred minute movie about that. I'm I don't know enough about the evolution of length of films. I, feel like I, I should would, know more. I would think that there that the films for silent films would be longer because you have to put in the text scenes where it like close it, where like the curtain closes and then there like text appears on the screen to say what they're talking. Yeah. I would think that they would be longer. Also, silent films are harder to make because you can't just like film closing a curtain and people putting text up. Like that doesn't make sense. I well, like I mean, they that that is that would be how they would do it. I mean, they we, would they would shoot those those text cards like that, and they would shoot the curtains closing and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It it doesn't mean though like they're in a scene and somebody comes in with a card while they're shooting and holds the card up and then they put it down and they go back to the scene. They would shoot all the action and then they would shoot their text cards uh, and they would shoot the curtain closings and openings and all that sort of stuff and then they would assemble it all together in the editing bay where they would cutting the film. Yeah, so it's basically like a silent Broadway film. Yeah, I mean, sort of. Yeah, I'm not sure what you mean by Broadway film. Nope. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I think silent films is actually interesting to talk about with regards to Rear Window, because I think 
Alfred Hitchcock actually pulls a lot of his silent film era shooting and skill set and brings it to Rear Window because there were two things that I noticed about this movie. It was the first time watch for all of us. Immediately was that there's no score. It's all the sounds of the city and the sounds of the neighbors in that courtyard. What score? Uh, the music that goes along in the background. We talked about this before a little bit with diegetic sounds and non-diegetic sounds, which is a fancy way of saying sounds that only the viewer can hear versus sounds that we can hear because the characters can also hear. So an example of that would be like when you hear a sound in a a music in a movie, right? A song in a movie, and then um, they're going to start talking and a character takes a record, a needle off of a record player, right? And all of a sudden the sound is over and you realize, oh, this song, they were actually hearing that kind of stuff. But so there's no, there's no score that only, there's no music that only we can hear in Rear Window. It's just literally the music of the sounds of the city and the people that are around him. Normally, his master of suspense is in the music because most of the time, if you put frightening music, it'll make the person frightened. If you put happy music, you're not going to have any suspense. For example, I was making a, I was trying to make a, we were having a dare to see who could make the, the most mild, scary movie and we video, which is the program that we use. And I, and, and my friend, he, he thought hyper was going to be a different track and he didn't listen to the track at all. So it's kind of like not tasting your batter that, that is probably going to, that is too sour or, or like you put salt in instead of sugar and didn't check. I put that in there, and then when it was time to present it to every, to all, to us, when it, when it was time for us, each of us to take a turn presenting to everybody, his his thing was like his thing was like, hurricane something 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 is gonna hit you, and then music, ba ba da ba ba da ba ba da na yay. Like that music. So he was going for like an ominous feel, but yeah. because he chose the wrong musical selection, it just ruined everything. Yeah. Well, let's let's co- we'll come back to the silent sound stuff later. I'm curious about you know when you say Alfred Hitchcock is known as the master of suspense, he normally does it with scores and stuff like that. What do you think was the most? Did you find Rear Window to be suspenseful? The only suspenseful part was the part where people were like dangling, where there was really dangerous, like. The suspense of Miss Lonely Art taking the taking the pills and writing a suicide note, and she knew she was killing herself. Lisa dangling f- like oh, when she's climbing in the window in the yeah, high heels. Yeah, and then also like when she's like climbing up the ladder. Mm-hmm. So like, basically, all the scenes where she's doing something you wouldn't normally do in high heels. Yeah. Well, what I about think- when Lars is bashing her around? Were you worried that Lisa would get killed? Yeah, that's suspense. And then the last one was where he was like, was where he was dangling from the window. And then the guy was like, oh. Oh, you know what? When he's dangling from the window and Lars is trying to kill him and the police are are running to save him, I was much less scared in that moment because you see what's happening. He's either going to fall or he's not going to fall. But there's no more wondering what's going to happen. When Jimmy Stewart is in his wheelchair in that apartment and it's dark and he can hear Lars coming up the stairs and he can't get to the door to lock it because there are steps, that what I thought was like, oh my God, what's going to happen? All right, but and I'm going to tell a story on you though because you say that it was no longer suspenseful when it got to him hanging out the window. But when Jimmy Stewart falls... You literally went, oh! Did I? <laughs> you did. <laughs> That's funny. Did I didn't it. notice. 
You're like, when he fell, you were like, ah! Like, oh! That's hilarious. I do not know. I'm a very emotive film watcher. I like I like to talk to the characters, like to warn them about things that they should know. Um, you know, example the lady where she has clear curtains and she's not she's standing under the water, aka still can see through the curtains, mm-hmm. and she still doesn't see the person coming up right behind her. Yeah. Like even if you can't see through the curtains, you can still see a shadow. Yep. They're not like one of the they're not like the cur- they're not like the Hello Kitty curtains in our bathroom. Yep. I get very loud during slasher films because there's always somebody running up the stairs when they shouldn't be or something like that. But I was not aware that I had expressed verbally concern for Jimmy Stewart, but it doesn't surprise me because it's totally in character. So you so you did find it suspenseful. Did you enjoy the movie overall, Claire? Because mm-hmm. you know, my big concern when we when we were going to show you Rear Window, especially after how little you like Rope, I wanted to show you the birds first because I think that there's more in the birds that you will naturally enjoy. And I felt like Rear Window would be too much of a talky film for you of just words, words, words. So I guess I'm curious, is having come off of Rope, did you enjoy the whole of Rear Window or did you really only enjoy the last 15 minutes of Rear Window and the rest of it was kind of like homework? Because all the suspenseful elements that you mentioned happened in the last 15 minutes of the movie because they don't go to dig up the tulips until, I, I want to say it's, it's like 20 minutes to go in the movie or something like that. And that really is when it does start to get palpably tense. No, I disagree. I disagree. I thought one of the scariest moments in that film is when the dog gets murdered, which is before the tulips because that's what prompts digging up the tulips. And he says, did you notice who did not come out? to see what the commotion was and they show that apartment window and it's completely dark and there's this little light fading in and out that is the end of his cigar and you can just picture this murderer lurking in this dark apartment smoking his cigar maybe watching you you don't know I thought that was really scary oh I I thought that was very tense but Claire did not identify that as tense and so that's what I was saying is you know, given that most of the tension in the film is in the last very short bit of it, did you enjoy the whole of the film? Yeah. Yeah? My least favorite parts is when they just show stuff. Like, for example, <laughs> when the lady... Isn't that a movie? <laughs> oh, she just rolled her eyes so in hard. In Rope, she didn't like it because all they did was talk. And now she doesn't like when they show stuff. No, it's because no, like so go ahead, go ahead. in some parts they're just like show they're just like moving around with the camera. I didn't like that because I could tell that even when they're showing somewhere else, there's always something different happening somewhere happening somewhere else. So I would have liked it better if they had multiple cameras, kind of like security cameras, where you could see every different thing at one time. Even though you could because like I I could just stare out the window and see every apartment window. He like I guess back in the older days, you could only look in one apartment at a time, I guess. But like if I was. What do, you, what, what do you say back in the olden days, you could only look at one apartment window at a time? Do you mean with like a camera? With a camera. Yeah. Now okay. you could now you could like so zoom you're, out. So in your head, what you see is like your rear window is a guy works at a security monitoring service and he's got all of these cameras up on his screen and he could see everything at the same time and maybe focus on something individually in a moment, but you can see constant feed of all of those things on the screen. That's interesting. You know what we should watch is, there's a couple of movies that do that. Nacho Vigilando has one that follows kind of something similar like that. 
And there's one that we saw in the theaters called Searching, which is told entirely from the perspective of a computer screen. Multiple video windows and stuff happening. That movie was really well done and very, very emotional. I bet you a thousand bucks there is an update of Rear Window that somebody has adapted and told from the perspective that you're talking about through like a video monitoring service. Absolutely. What I was thinking was that he set up like he knew something was happening because he had seen it when he was just like walking to the kitchen. Like he was doing some cleaning and his and his like wife or or if it's a girl, her husband wasn't home or something like that. And then they see the lights go out and then when they come back, there's there's no woman or man there's no woman in the room. Now are you mad because you feel like you wanted to see the murder, so you know the whole time that he actually did murder somebody? Yeah. Well, what would have been good for me was that you could see, like, like it's like one of those scars, or, or, I said that right, right? I don't know what you're, you're getting at. Scars, like when, like when only you can hear it, and the character can't. Oh, the, like the sounds? Yeah, but like with like, projecting like you see it at the beginning and then it cuts to like titles then it cuts to like the person saying like then it cuts to the person seeing sure. it through the cam I, well i think that's one of the interesting things so like alfred hitchcock clearly makes a choice to keep the camera in jimmy stewart's apartment the entire time and i, I think as a filmmaker he's made that deliberate choice so that you are stuck trying to decide is this lonely invalid who's at his wits end having been house under house arrest basically for six weeks uh lost his mind and or should we trust what we're seeing or what he's seeing at this point um you know and, and some of that tension is in like the madness of isolation um and how reliable he is as a person i i think it's a different sort of exploration as a filmmaker if you show that the definitively the murder happens which i, I think is some of the tension of what hitchcock is exploring I think that once you hear the part that, because like what I was, like they never say anything about him cheating or having an affair or anything, but what I think happened was that. um, Actually, yes. Hang on. What I really would like to, because this is totally from Jimmy Stewart's perspective is, what is your story as far as what happened with um, the murder and the wife? I, I would be curious to hear yours too, Danielle. What do you mean my story? What do you think happened? What's your, like in your own head, what what did he watch happen? The only thing we ever conclusively find out is that the wife is, well, we find out that the wife is dead and that he disposed of the body. That's the only thing that is ever actually confirmed. We don't know anything else. We don't know anything. So what do you think happened is your dad's question. I think that because the girl knew too much, quote-unquote, knew too much. Like, he was, like, doing... He was, like, sailing, like, stuff that he shouldn't be. Like, when he was showing the suitcase full of, like, jewelry, it was stolen jewelry because there were still price tags on it. When, if he was a salesman, there wouldn't be price tags on it yet. Hmm. Because he doesn't take stuff from stores. It's his own stuff. Mm-hmm. So he can't... So it can't just have a price tag. He doesn't so go he's out and buy stolen, he's he's moving stolen goods. Yeah. And the wife finds out. Yeah. And he's got to deal with that. And so he murders her. Yeah, because he's like talking over the phone and you think it's an affair, but I think 
He's talking up over the phone with the person he's going to sell the stuff to, but he can't make it all in one trip. Otherwise, the police are going to find out and going to be suspicious. Like, why do you go there and not come back with a suitcase? Oh, man. I love this. This is like a film noir movie told from the perspective of the backdoor neighbor who's stuck watching it all play out. This is great. I'd watch that movie, too. <laughs> and like he can't just go out multiple times and just come back with an empty suitcase because the police will know because or like like people who just stand on the side because sometimes like in the picture shot where they show that the petunias have been moved i in my mind also in another movie like you can tell if they're holding it different because if it's heavy they'll be it'll be lower to the ground but if it's empty they'll be holding it up higher when he walks back, it's still the same. So there's still stuff inside. So I think when he walks out with someone, I think that that's some type of like man or like mannequin or something that he's walking with to make everyone think that the suitcase was filled with stuff. And he's packing to get away because he knows that some people are finding out because of the dog incident. Hmm. All right. And so, and he has to bring all the evidence. So he has to wipe the walls where he where he disposed of the body now bef- now the part where he kills her i'm gonna save till the end like one of those movies where you're tr- like a detective and then at the end they reveal how he was killed he or she was killed <laughs> so then he has to wipe down everything and stella's fury stella's theory was right where he chopped her up in the bathtub and i liked when you went I'm eating my bacon here. Don't go talking about dead bodies. I like that scene because he wanted the salacious details and he wanted to think about his neighbors as murderers. And as soon as his nurse started to put some actual physical detail to the realities of that, he suddenly lost his taste for the macabre. It's very interesting to me. So then I think that he, I think that the, that the killer was like printing up his tracks and going and who he left with was actually the salesman he was selling to because when he's talking you can hear shuffle you can hear muffling in the background when he's talking cuz like you don't see him come back you only hear like you he's talking to someone else but if you listen closely into the background there's like muffling like talking and i think because it's not the party that they're having because that's a big loud and you can tell if you listen very closely, there's a quiet muffling. And I think that's from him trying to get the person inside so that he walked out and everybody thought that it was Anna, that it was Anna Lars. And then Anna Lars, and then the Anna La- quote-unquote Anna Lars comes to pick up her stuff. Now, one, you know from the beginning when he says that he brought, that she brought all her stuff and he's rolling up the mattress because, one, a woman does not go on a trip and take every single thing she know, she owns, a.k.a. I do that. P.S. I do that sometimes, but uh, Mama tells me take, like, one or two things or something like that. And then leaving your wedding ring behind is a big no-no. Well, I didn't really actually understand why they had such a big fuss about her leaving the wedding ring behind. I mean, if their marriage is falling apart and she's ditching and that's why she's gone... Um, not because of her health, but because the marriage is over. She wouldn't take the ring with her. She might take it to sell it, but I, I couldn't really see her being particularly attached to it one way or the other. Yeah, but it was in a handbag full of accessor- full of priceless jewelry that's beautiful. It's full of makeup. It's 
her favorite handbag. Like she wouldn't just leave that thing behind. Sure, she might sell the ring, but and might leave it there. But she wouldn't leave that behind. Well, Claire, what what I'm getting from your retelling of the backstory here is that you like this movie a lot more than you're letting on in the first part of it. <laughs> and okay, so then how it act the murder actually happens? She come when the when the when the thing glows black, and like. You hear like a scream. That scream is from her being stabbed. Like, no doubt. So basically what happens is that he he tries to choke her and she pulls away and tries to hurt, tries to go in back. He takes, like, because you can see the blood coming off of that knife. It's way too big for some meat. And then he stabs her like three times, kind of like psycho, then he cleans off the knives and he puts them in a newspaper and he and he like like I don't I think he puts it in the chest like at the very bottom of the chest with with all the stuff and he piles it on top so that nobody knows. Also, even if your lock was broken, you don't it, it isn't too expensive to just get a new lock. You wouldn't tie it up with rope. You can just get another lock. 1954 it's not it's not like late enough where what era do you presume would be challenging then to get locks replaced on a piece of furniture silent films <laughs> all right i i i think we've got the backstory from you on that danielle i'm curious what your take is on the background i don't know that i know for sure some of the details i think that he was having an affair and I think that the relationship between him and his wife was very poor. I actually don't think that there was anything wrong with his wife. I think that she had taken to her bed um, out of maybe just, I don't even know how to spite. say this. Yeah, literally, like to spite him. Because it doesn't read like depression because she's- She laughs. She, right, she laughs and she's sitting up and she comes out of the room when she wants to see what he's doing. And every time he goes in there- She's, she's very mean to him. She's very mean to him and she's berating him. And that doesn't really read to me like someone who's too depressed to get out of the bed. Kind she's of. clearly not physically too ill because she gets up when she wants to see what's going on with the phone call. And we never see any medicine or thermometers or, you know, a nurse visiting. Like Jimmy Stewart has a nurse in his house because he broke his leg. If she was so ill that she had to be in the bed, you know, I would expect some kind of nurse visit. So I don't think there's anything wrong with her. I think that she has taken to her bed because she is a very unhappy, angry person, and her only joy, for lack of a better word, in life, is berating her husband. So your theory is she got what she had coming no, to No, no, no. I'm not saying she got what she had coming to That's not my point. But I'm sort of setting the stage here, right? So he has taken a mistress. I'm fairly certain about that, because he's on the phone with someone, and she hears something that motivates her to get out of the bed and come into the other room to find out who he's on the phone with. And then her, once she finds out, you know, whatever she discovers, we don't know because we're only seeing it from Jimmy Stewart's perspective. She laughs at him in a really mean looking way. And I think that that kind of pushed him to the edge because... You know, not here. She finds out that he's cheating on her and she's not angry. She's not hurt. She thinks that he's ridiculous and she's mocking him. And we can just imagine what she says to him in that moment. Like, you know, this person 
will lose interest in you just as fast as I but did or whatever. She's making he's making her breakfast in bed with a uh, uh, sunflower mm-hmm. um, for She throws the sunflower on the ground though. Yeah. That's that those are not the actions of an adulterer, are they? Sure, one with a guilty conscience, you bet. Hmm. I could see that. Okay. Yeah, I mean you cheat on your wife who claims to be so sick that she can't get out of the bed. Um, Let the record show, Danielle. I have never made you breakfast in bed. (laughs) Oh, okay. I didn't realize that was the test of fidelity. You are a great upstanding husband. You are a great upstanding (laughs) husband. Um. Anyways, so, but I'm I'm kind of laying this out because I'm going to get to where I am not sure about what happened, and then I think he strangles her. We see in his response to both Lisa and Jimmy Stewart that that's sort of his violent response of choice. And the dog. And the dog, exactly. Strangles the dog as well. Good catch, Claire. Um, And there's no blood in the apartment. So he has to have murdered her in some way that doesn't, you know, there's not, not a stabbing or a shooting or anything like that. So I think he strangles her and then... Um, sets about dismembering her. I don't think that he planned it. I think it was probably a crime of passion because if he had planned it, he would not have buried any pieces in the garden right next to their apartment. That's not a good cover story. No, it's terrible, um, actually. Yeah, it's really bad. And he wouldn't have done it with the windows open. That's also not a good idea. And then I think he calls the girlfriend in a panic. And is like, oh my God, I can't believe I did this. And she rushes over there. And then they come up with this cover story. And so he takes her to the train station. She gets on the train and she goes. And then he ships all the clothes and and all the rest of that. And the only possible reason I can think of for not burying the jewelry with the wife is that he intends to give it to the girlfriend, which is just gross. But here's what I don't understand. They make a comment after the fact that that uh, I think it's the police detective who says it, that he's not acting like someone who's panicked. You know, there's no like erratic behavior after the fact. And it takes a lot to dismember a body, especially if it's somebody that you presumably loved, you know, at least at one point in time. (laughs) Stop it, William. And then to have the calm that it takes to dispose of her over the course of multiple trips through the middle of the night, right? And this leads me to sort of wonder if there's any possibility that the girlfriend came over to the house unexpected to confront them and the girlfriend killed the wife and he does all of that to cover her her tracks. Then why does he kill everybody else? Oh, to to cover his tracks and their or their tracks. But here's my thing. If you are the other woman, right? And this man calls you and goes, oh my gosh, you have to come over here. Something terrible has happened. And you show up to discover that he has murdered his wife and he wants you to help him cover up his crime. There is no way I'm doing that. But she loves him. It's no. true love. No. <laughs> no. Are you saying you wouldn't help me hide a body? I mean, it, Yes, I would absolutely help you hide a body, but See? I would not help you hide your first wife's body. Oh, okay, that's fair. Like, I'm a first girlfriend. I mean, this is like the women who get in a relationship with someone who everybody knows beat up their, their former partner. Like, what are you thinking here? That, oh, well, they were really abusive in that relationship, but it's going to be fine now. Like, we know that when this relationship goes south, you're going to end up in tiny pieces in the East River. Like, this is not good choice making. Not always. You can end up in tiny pieces in a factory. You can end up in a graveyard. Mm-hmm. You can end up in flowers. Mm-hmm. You can end up in someone's lungs. 
Oh. Mm. Oh, alternative theory. Theory number three. He clearly has the personality that is bullied by the women in his life because he tolerates that behavior from his wife for so long. Maybe the girlfriend has been telling him, whispering in his ear for a long time, that if he would just kill his wife, they could be together. And that's why she helps him cover it up. It's always the women's fault with you, Danielle. I'm just saying. It's not very feminist of you. It's, it is actually extremely feminist of me because I am <gasps> elevating both of these women to very influential positions of agency over their own existence. Honestly, I don't like Alfred Hitchcock's <laughs> version of a woman because he has the character think that a woman is supposed to be supposed to be like, I'm going to stay in one place. I'm going to be a fashion designer. I'm gonna be a teacher. I'm gonna I'm gonna work all day for you. No, she climbs on a building, like in heels. Yeah. So there is some weird, like, mixed messaging here, and I I think this is what happens when somebody in the what did we say late early fifties? Nineteen fifty four. Yeah. So somebody in nineteen fifty four who is trying to be a feminist but is really weighed down by. The patriarchy, I feel like this is what you end up with because Lisa's character is badass. She is like the strongest, most amazing female character I think that we've seen from any of these older films. Um, Especially because she climbs on a building and heals. Yeah, she does all the action. Jimmy Stewart is the damsel in this particular film. He's the Um, damsel in distress. Right. And, (laughs) And I love that. And I think that Hitchcock, you know, made sure that she was not delicate and a big part of the film is her proving to Jimmy Stewart that she is just as um capable as he is exactly exactly Claire exactly and then the 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 caveat to it though is that she's doing all of that so she can land her man and get married so there's a little bit of a mm. (laughs) I, I mean I think that that's part of why it doesn't matter so much what the motive is for the murder because in I mean in reality like we'll t- step it back and like like look at it like a a film critic right and analyze what's actually being shown there is you see Jimmy Stewart seeing his and her possible futures based on the choice that they make looking out the back of his window as he po- as he is stuck pondering this decision about whether or not to marry this woman that he loves who are clearly from two very different worlds. He's not an unsuccessful man, but he definitely is an adrenaline junkie, and he's always going off to places far off to do dangerous things. And she's more of a high society fashion type person, and, and those don't necessarily mix. He's clearly her senior. I, I mean, in real life, they're maybe 20 years apart when the movie's filmed, and, and I don't think that they're playing it much different than that one way or the other. So he's really, truly having to think, like... Can I have a life that functions with this person? And he sees the newlyweds who are constantly with the blinds down doing hanky panky. Um, and he's like, he laughs at that. He's like, oh, yeah, because she's always with the honey. And he's like, oh, it's so exhausting to have to go back to bed. Um, you know, and he <laughs> thinks that's that. funny and he appreciates the lovebirds of that. Um, but then he also sees the woman who lives alone and stays alone, both in the one who pursues her art by by making hungry man art out in the the yard right versus uh, Mrs. Lonely Heart, who's constantly looking for the man that she loves and dreaming of what she'll find and being unsuccessful with it, and then the couple who's married together who don't belong together. Now that man ultimately murders his wife, but I think he sees his futures there. Is he going to be the lonely guy in an apartment living by himself, um, trying to make something where he's stuck in this pad? He gives it all up for the wife, you know. 
Um, can he be happy like Miss Torso, right? Who's dancing around and, and living it up while the, the husband's off in the world? Or is that what his wife is going to be doing while he's playing army man and going off to all these foreign places to take these pictures? Okay, but I got to interrupt there for a second because I think that the Miss Torso, I think initially he sees her as Lisa, as this person who will never be satisfied being tied down because she's so active and she's so vibrant and she's always having guests over and she's seeing all these different men. She doesn't commit to any of them. It isn't really until the end of the film when his perspective on Lisa has changed that we find out that Miss Torso is actually a very happily married woman and she's married to a man who is absolutely not her equal in terms of physical appearance. Oh, for sure. And and I, I actually... Yeah. Well, yes. He is short. He, um, I think she makes a comment about him having lost weight while he was gone. So there's like, and he's not clearly not physically, and he's not fit. So there's an implication that he was, you know, maybe very overweight before. Um, he has glasses, like, you know, every. And I'm not saying that glasses are unattractive. I'm saying that he is the physical embodiment of every stereotype you can come up with for you know, things that make people unattractive. I, I think that that's part and parcel of it. But I, I also think that all of this ultimately is how we project our insecurities onto the lives of others. And we really have no idea what's going on behind closed doors. Not just that they're kept secrets, but that it's almost impossible for us to see with our own two eyes and actually understand something that's happening um, to which we are not living as a part of it. Because we put too much of ourselves into what we're watching. Like when I feel like you're set up to think that this guy, that Lars is a murderer, right? And the first time that he goes out there and encounters that dog, I think he's going to kick that dog because that's what a murderer does. That's what a gruff, angry man does. He just kicks the dog. Hey, get away from my flowers. But he doesn't. You know, he, he bends over and he, and he does that. But I think that's a deliberate setup that Hitchcock does to remind you that the things that you think just by seeing have more to do with what you think and feel and what you worry about than they ever do with what is going on in anybody else's mind. Because it turns out then you have that reaction and then Lars does strangle that dog and murder him. And you're like, oh, so I projected him as having zero impulse control because of it, but but he doesn't have zero impulse control. And so it, it just everything that you see and expect is so tainted by who you are that it's inescapable. There were like lights on his head. When the dog is rummaging through his flowers, his light is yellow. But then when he murders the dog, his light is red. Green as in being you're not, you're happy. Yellow being like you're slightly stressed or mad. And then red being you've blown your top. Hmm. You should be left alone. So this is your reading of his emotional state. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Um. Well, let's see. So... I think we've been going on for a while. Is there anything else in Rear Window that anybody wants to get into? Well, there's one thing I want to talk to you about. In the films, there's like a lot of like, they're in every film, the patriotic thing that... Patriarchal? The patriarchal thing that tells you what you have to do. They make it clear. They like... They they shoot like a five second part where she's pulling out the book and they shoot it for like ten seconds, where it's just the 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 cross of a of a Bible when she's rummaging through to find the stuff. It's like a Miss Lonely Heart as she, as she's looking through her desk drawers, she's thinking about killing herself. Yeah, there's like a Bible, uh-huh. and then they, and then when he zooms in with the camera, you can see the vi- the Bible, mm-hmm. 
and they make it pretty clear, and you see the cross two times. Okay. So what do you think about that? I think I'm not sure why you're bringing it up, I guess is what I'm saying. Because it's part of because it's part of saying that if, if it doesn't have any Christianity, it's a bad movie. It's what mm-hmm. they're saying. Like, I think originally he didn't put any Christianity in that. And then the patriarchic thingy came and was like, hey, you have to put something here. You have to put something here. You have to put something here. You can't have that. You can't have that. Move oh. it. Um, like the, the commission that reviews films as far as what's allowed. Not the patriarchy, although I guess that's kind of the patriarchy. It's <laughs> <laughs> definitely some overlap. Uh, okay, so the censors who are deciding what you can and cannot show, your theory is if he wants to show someone preparing to commit suicide, they're only okay with it if... There's a Bible. There's and, a Bible And they're involved. thinking about their Lord and Savior in it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I mean, that. I, I wouldn't say that that's totally wrong. That... That's within the realm of possibility for sure that that's a conversation. Why not? I thought that that scene was interesting to me. And I, I really wish that that I could, uh, how do I say this? That I knew somebody who was an adult in 1954 that I could just like call up and ask them about this. But, you know, we're all watching this like, oh no, Miss Lonely Heart's going to kill herself. Why aren't they doing anything about it? And then well into that scene, all of a sudden the nurse is like, oh no, call the police. And I was like, okay, first of all, why are we calling the police and not an ambulance? And, you know, why are we sitting in the room calling anybody? Why aren't we going over there knocking on the door and being like, hey, you know, uh, anything to distract her until they get there. And so it just kind of made me wonder, like, are people taking sleeping pills such a common occurrence that it wouldn't occur to them? Um, that she's in no. danger. I or... no, I don't think so. I think I think when she pulls out those pills, that the nurse catches on immediately, and Jimmy Stewart agrees that she is going to kill herself. And same with with Lisa. But they are so obsessed with what's happening in that other apartment that they literally cannot involve themselves in the lives of saving a life because they want to unpack the awfulness doesn't have that same unsavory titillating factor exactly but Mm. also they're trying to detect something and they know that she wanted it but the but the murder was not planned she is planning this they're like well let's leave her to it she she's having an awful life and i say that clearly we're watching i'm like you're like why aren't they doing anything about it and i'm like I mean, it's her choice. She can choose to kill herself. She could choose to commit suicide. She doesn't have to guess, live on a life that she hates. That's not a choice that a happy person right. is making yeah, who is in full possession of their ability to really understand the impact of that choice. I totally agree. I don't believe that anyone who is in their right mind and making good decisions decides to end their life. I think that is the action of someone who is either very desperate or very sick. And both of those scenarios, that person needs help. I think she's both. She's very lovesick. Like, I think that's the word I'm trying to use. Like, well, she's sad. Yeah. She's, she's, she's very lonely. She's alone. She's, she's, not, she's not, you know, there are people, I think, who the way that they're built are comfortable living a fairly small isolated life i think that that's fine i think people live like that and and live happy lives like that but she was clearly not one of those people and 
I think that the movie sets up your judgment of their of their actions, Jimmy Stewart's, the nurses, and Lisa's actions in that moment with the speech from the woman who owns the dog. Her dog gets strangled, and she says, nobody stopped this. Nobody saw this. All you do is you look out your windows, and nobody talks to anybody, and you just stare, and you don't take any actions. And the only action that, that even these three are interested in taking is in the one that's titillating and the one that's not good or unwholesome. But this person whose life they could save, they don't do anything. There's no passion or concern for life in their motivation. It's the thrill of a mystery. Yeah, that's true. And I, I do, I think it's interesting that Lonely Heart ends up with the musician at the end of the film because Jimmy Stewart has spent six weeks watching these people. He knows that both of them are alone and never at any point does it occur to any of those people to be like, hey, maybe we should just introduce them. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good that's a good point. I I thought one of the most one of the most horrible parts of the film, and I think it was pretty clear that Hitchcock thought it was horrible too, so I was happy about that, is the police detective when he starts talking about how much time he's wasted in his career because of women's intuition. <laughs> what? Right? I was like, what is wrong with this person? Like, oh. He's an asshole. <laughs> yeah, he's he's not good. But it it is interesting, though, I guess maybe a, a sign of the times that the film was made in. You know, I feel like Jimmy Stewart clearly did not agree with what he was saying, but he was perfectly fine allowing his friend to say that stuff in his house in front of his girlfriend and at no point was like, hey, you're you're being disrespectful. I, I think that he's, in that moment, is more interested, Jimmy Stewart is more interested in what Lisa will do or say in response to it. Mm-hmm. Because I think in his head, he's really worried about whether or not she can take care of herself if they do have this life together. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's the right choice, but I think he's he's like, well, what will happen if somebody comes up and is like, hey, your opinion is garbage because you're a woman? What's she going to say to that? Which is like, I don't know. Like, I don't think it's a very, I think it's on the same level of, I'm really interested in, in solving a murder because a woman was murdered um, when he could save a woman's life who's right in front of him. It's an afterthought. Like, it's that it's that same level of, like, wrongheadedness that, that is driving that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And, you know, I also sort of in the back of my mind wonder if he would have been as emotionally invested or if any of them would have been as emotionally invested in the murder if it had not included dismemberment. Oh, probably you not. Know, because yeah. that brings such a... Like, Ooh, right, what happened? Exactly. What like, kind of person is this guy? Yes, yeah, such this a macabre. Guy, oh, man. Mm-hmm. He cut her up. Oh, boy. How did he... Why did he do that? He's got saws, man. Right, exactly. And, you know, there's there's pieces of her everywhere. Scattered all over the city. It is normal to have a gigantic butcher knife and to have a sm- and it's normal to have a small saw. But it's not normal for you to be looking out your window. <laughs> Look, let me tell you, man, if if somebody who lives in an apartment has a giant machete and a tree saw or a bone saw in their apartment, I'm going to assume they're killing people because what are you maintaining the hedges? Give me a break. He's an amateur butcher. Yeah, he's an am- Yeah, he is an amateur butcher. <laughs> All right. Anything else that anybody wants to get into? The only other thing I want to say, and it, and it doesn't require a long discussion, is you know we've spent a lot of time on the podcast talking about female characters that we could have done without, or or we didn't care for the way that they were constructed. 
And I thought that both Lisa and Stella, uh, that was the nurse, right, Stella? I believe so. I miss Lonely Hearts. Yeah. Uh, well, but I'm talking about the two that had dialogue in the oh. film. I thought that they were such phenomenal characters and fun to watch and engaging and amazing. And even the silent characters like Lonely Heart and Miss Torso, you know, they were all had amazing character development, especially given that they didn't speak. Of the cast of characters that he's watching through his window, the women definitely got more character development than the men, with the exception of Lars. You know, the couple that sleeps out on the balcony, the wife has the whole speech. We never really get anything from the husband. The newlyweds, you know, the only the only real message we get from the husband is that he's really sweet and he wanted her to wanted to carry her over the threshold and she's wearing him out. Um, but but she is the more vivacious and you know, she has the energy. Like every in that time couple. he opens the window to smoke something or like to poke his head out, she's like, Honey, come here. Yep. Yep, exactly. And, you know, Lonely Heart probably gets, Lonely Heart and Torso, I would say, get the most development out of any of them. So I just, I really appreciate it, especially given the age of the film, how well the female characters were developed and how they were portrayed. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess we'll wrap up the episode. Hold on. I want to end it on a different note. The note of there's going to be a sequel to this. And it's going to be about security cameras and it's going to be mine. Okay, now end it. Okay, so we'll end on the note of Claire will strive to make a rear window adaptation featuring security cameras. I will watch that movie when it is made. Stay tuned to Operation Master of Suspense as next week we will be doing The Birds, which I am excited about. I've seen it before. I'm curious to see what Claire makes of that particular movie. Danielle is making woo face. No, I'm just so excited because at least once in that recording, I'm going to have to go, The Birds. Don't. Right. Don't. (laughs) um and and then i think that that might wrap up operation master of suspense and from there we'll dive into musicals so if you don't follow the podcast find us on twitter at b-a-c-e-a podcast wherever you listen to the podcast if you would rate and review we sure would appreciate that but the big one for us is itunes so if you have a few minutes you can jump over there and give us a five-star rating we would appreciate it because that is exactly sort of help that only listeners like you can provide as we seek to expand our audience. On that note, give us a five-star rating. We're going to get out of here. Until next time. Peace out.